With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Word Now. Word Now Productions, in association with the Fremont Center Theater and Eclipse One Media, present Word Now, a live storytelling show. Our evening of storytelling was recorded live on Sunday, July 17, 2016, at the Fremont Center Theater at 100 Fremont Street in South Pasadena, California. Tonight's theme, Independence. To see an upcoming show or for more information, visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. Listen to the voices of independence. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Word Now. Um, this is our sixth show, which Woo. we're pretty excited about. Yay! Um, our theme tonight is independence, which uh, has a lot of meanings nowadays. Um, so uh, I think you're going to be uh, enjoy our stories. Um, we have eight storytellers for you tonight. Um, I am Jill Remes. I'm the host tonight. Um, on behalf of the Fremont Center Theater, we welcome you. Please, if anybody has their cell phones still on, please turn them off. Um, oh, and next, our next show, just to pique your interest, is um, in September. It's September 18th, which again is a Sunday night, and our theme is fall. Please tune into the podcast. It's at wordnowstories.com. You could hear old, uh, old podcasts from uh, previous shows, and you can also turn your friends on to our podcasts at wordnowstories.com. That's wordnowstories.com. Our first storyteller tonight, the theme of independence, is Will Link. Will is a writer, performer, and critic. So be nice. Um, he hosts recap shows for Orphan Black and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., as well as his own weekly pop culture podcast, Will Sean Podcast. As an essayist, essayist he has performed at Sit and Spin, Tell It, Taboo Tales, and many other Los Angeles storytelling shows. His essay, Young Young Ladies, was recently published in the collection, Damn It, I Love You, from Branch Street Press. Will Link. With all due respect to the Founding Fathers, independence is overrated. <laughs> when I lost my job, everyone said, this will be great. You have all the time to do all the creative things that matter. You'll have independence. That sounded well and good, but those people turned out to be fucking idiots. <laughs> Apparently, in order to nurture my unbridled creativity, I need strict routine and structure. Call me crazy, but I can't write the next great novel while worrying how I'm going to feed, clothe, and shelter myself. In order to succeed at life, my soul must be stifled by a dull day job. What did the, what did the guy from Office Space do for a living? Because that's the job for me. Many have suggested I get an independent job. We live in an age where you can have strangers pay to live in your home. I don't want them in my home masturbating on everything I own because that's what the people using Airbnb are doing. How do I know? Because that's what I would do. Or you can play cab driver and get a job with Uber. I don't want these drunk hipster fucks in my car talking to me about their craft beer, man bun, Bernie bro nonsense. I've only taken an Uber once. The driver was a religious fanatic, missed my exit, and got pulled over by the cops. Besides, if I had a job where I was beholden to no one, I'd never show up for work. 
I need a stern, preferably female boss to bring me to heel. That last statement shouldn't surprise anyone who's heard me perform essays about my sex life. I want a government so large and controlling that I never have to think for myself. I want a girlfriend so demonstrative that I lose all semblance of who I am as an individual. I want a routine so dull and repetitive it makes prison look like Disney World. In fact, if not for the food selection and lack of female sexual partners, prison doesn't sound so bad. At least I wouldn't have to worry about what to do with my freedom. <laughs> Leaving me with too much independence is a dangerous thing. It means I will either do everything or I will do nothing. There is no sensible productive in between. Since getting laid off, I've focused more on the nothing. My first action after losing my job was not to file for unemployment. It was to binge watch the Lifetime hit series Unreal, which is a fucking amazing show, but maybe not the best use of my time. With all my independence, I started having ice cream dinners at least twice a week. Sometimes I'd eat multiple bags of microwave popcorn throughout the day instead of meals. On the rare times I would leave my apartment, I felt like Jacob Tremblay in room, bright-eyed and awed, seeing the world for the first time. I took to the streets, listening to podcasts, marching my way through the San Fernando Valley and towards infinity. Having the freedom to do all that is no way to live. But it's still better than being able to do everything. With no income, my resources are limited but I fear unlimited financial independence coupled with free time would turn me into a hedonistic nightmare. <laughs> I've never done cocaine, but mark my words, in an independent world of no immediate consequences, I will do mountains of cocaine. <laughs> I can't afford to go out and drink myself to death, but I'm almost certain I would, because I never feel more free than when I'm drinking. Drunk Will Link is the most independent Will Link. <laughs> and an independent Will Link is a danger to himself and possibly others. My main evidence to support this was a trip I took to Las Vegas. I went with three friends and knew I'd never have more freedom than this. I was leaving LA, going to a city where everyone was drunk 24-7 and pretending to be someone they weren't. We took my friend Darren's old beat-up car. I drove as everyone else slept. The second we left Los Angeles, I felt a dangerous sense of freedom. I sped through the desert night, going a minimum of 100 miles per hour the entire way, truly a man possessed. I pushed his car to the limit. As we drove into Vegas, I woke everyone up. We pulled up to the valet and I tossed him the keys. I can't park this car, he said incredulously. Why the hell not? He gestured toward the hood. Black smoke billowed from the engine. In my race towards independence, I'd killed Darren's car. After getting it repaired, I turned into a new human being, a total monster. We are not club people, and yet I wanted to go to as many clubs as possible and drink anything anyone handed me. Slowly, my friends got into the spirit of it. Jared decided to take on a whole new persona. He spent the evening telling women he was a professional chef and frequently caters events for George Clooney. A lie just unusual enough to be believed. I, however, was too drunk to take on a fake backstory. In fact, I was too drunk to even sleep. I'd roll in every night at 4 a.m. and wake up by 8. I couldn't rest knowing people in the hotel were having fun without me. On our last night, I hit a breaking point. At a douchey club in Caesar's Palace, I drank just enough to send me out onto the dance floor alone. I met a foursome of cute girls in town from Korea. It was perfect. English was their second language, and I was slurring my speech. <laughs> I danced with them for a good half hour before they said they had to go get drinks from their VIP table. I was a little upset they didn't invite me into the VIP section with them, but at that moment, Darren approached. We want to gamble. Are you coming or are you staying? I looked at him like this was the stupidest question ever asked. I'm staying. And with that, my friends abandoned me, giving me complete and horrible freedom. 
The girls returned and had brought me a drink. And then another. I had no idea what I was drinking and didn't care. Then after 30 more minutes, they abruptly said good night and left. They disappeared so quickly, I wondered if they'd even been real. And, ju and just like that, I was the creepy weirdo alone on the dance floor. <laughs> I knew I should leave, get back to my hotel. I made my way out of the club and into the lobby of Caesars. I saw a revolving door leading to the street. I stepped in just fine, but tried to step out a little too soon, slamming my face into the glass hard. It's a miracle I didn't break my glasses. As I made it to the street, holding my head in pain, a man approached asking, are you all right? Show no weakness, I thought. Immediately, I straightened up and shouted, I'm fine. I knew I had three options. One, call a cab and take it to my hotel. Two, go back inside, get a glass of water, and sober up. Three, walk two miles down the darkened strip at 3 a.m. to my hotel. Obviously, I chose option three. <laughs> it was, after all, the most freeing option. As I wandered the streets, I started to get paranoid. All I kept thinking was, they're going to get you. Then a voice in my head said, run. Who they are, I'll never know. But I ran, oh how I ran, down the strip like a psycho. Finally, I reached my hotel. I burst through the doors, out of breath. Then a woman in a short leopard print dress approached me. Hey, short stuff, she seductively said. <laughs> short stuff? Wanna have a good time? I stared at her and realized I'd pushed my limits. If I gave in to my freedom anymore, this would be who I was forever. No, I screamed in her face. I ran away, back to my room, back to safety. The next day we returned to LA. I was normal, stifled, but happy Will, knowing that with, the, with complete independence, I'd have overindulged until death. In an attempt to find this balance between doing nothing and doing everything, I recently was able to secure a part-time job. This gig involves me selling high-end shampoo for horses. <laughs> I hope not to do it too long since it's non-entertainment related, and God knows those jobs have worked out for me so far. But maybe this will become my thing. I'll be the horse hair guy. Two years from now, I'll be at a conference in Vegas giving a keynote speech on how to achieve a luxurious mane. <laughs> and this time, I won't be drunkenly running through the streets. I won't have enough independence for that. Thank you. Well, Link. Our next storyteller is Bill Brocktrup. Um, and Bill has performed here before, so if anybody is a, uh, has been here before, you will have seen Bill. He is a, is a stage, film, and television actor currently recurring on TNT's Major Crimes as savvy police psychologist, Dr. Joe. He is the co-artistic director of the Antius Theatre Company, a classical theater ensemble, and opened last weekend in the David Greenspan comedy, Go Back to Where You Are at the Odyssey Theatre in West Los Angeles. Welcome, Del Brocktrip. Do they know who I am, I asked. Oh, NYPD Blue is very popular overseas, my publicist assured me. But do they know which one I am, I asked. <laughs> yes, John is a very popular character. He's the gay receptionist, I said. I play the gay receptionist. Yes, they know, she said. Okay, then I'll do it. And that's how I found myself flying to the Persian Gulf to entertain the troops for the USO in July 2001. <laughs> now, I don't sing or dance, but it turns out the USO has something called handshake tours that send TV people, pretty loosely defined, <laughs> overseas to meet and greet US military personnel. Our mission would be to bring a little piece of American cheer and some t-shirts to soldiers for the 4th of July. 
And maybe, I thought, I could enlighten a few closed minds while I was at it. You see, I went to high school in Tacoma, Washington in the 1980s, and all the kids from Accord Air Force Base and the Army's Fort Lewis went to my school. During my senior year, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, and the U.S. reinstated a policy of mandatory draft registration for 18-year-olds. When the news was announced in my social studies class, everybody cheered, except me. <laughs> and I was already on shaky ground, having stated that FDR was our country's greatest president, not Ronald Reagan. Plus, my drama club friends and I always sensed a judgmental sneer on the lips of the soldiers we'd see stumbling into town ready to hit the honky-tonks with their paychecks on Friday nights as we headed over to the midnight screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show in our glitter and eyeliner. <laughs> Even before their don't ask, don't tell policy, I had a pretty low opinion of the military. But I was so intrigued by the idea that the USO wanted to send a gay guy to the Islamic Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to meet the troops that I agreed to the itinerary with a lightheartedness that only could have existed prior to the then unimaginable events of September 11th, just two months away. The plan was to sign autographs in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, and Abu Dhabi, alongside a sexy young actress from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. <laughs> while, a group, while a group from the sitcom Just Shoot Me would visit Jordan. Then we would all meet up in Bahrain, the whole enterprise to be billed as Star Flight over Southwest Asia. Two days before our departure, CNN reported that security levels had been raised due to a credible terrorist threat and that all non-essential military transport had ceased. Feeling pretty non-essential, I called the USO. We were still going, but there was some bad news. We would not be allowed into Saudi Arabia itself. And worse, the Sabrina actress was dropping out. <laughs> but on my flight to Dubai, I found an anonymous note on my seat, apparently left by an encouraging fan. We change minds one at a time. Your character could be a poster child for that. Yes, that's what I would do. It all seems so clear, so subversive, really, like infiltrating the enemy camp. I would make the military rethink its policies, one mind, one autograph, and one t-shirt at a time. Yes. <laughs> I arrived in Dubai to learn that freak electrical storms in DC had caused my USO liaison to be indefinitely delayed, along with the shirts, Sharpies, and 8x10s. But there was some good news. I'd been cleared to visit a docked aircraft carrier in the port of Jebel Ali. It's 40 women and 5,000 men. 5,000 sailors, no pictures, no shirts, no liaison, no girl, no singing, no dancing, and precious little celebrity, and that only as a gay TV secretary. <laughs> I couldn't sleep. Wide awake in the over-marbled luxury of a Dubai hotel room, I thought about Tacoma. I was a freshman in high school, moving up the crowded stairwell to fourth period Spanish. I wore a brand new forest green cowboy shirt with silver piping and mother of pearl snaps. Eddie Ulrich, one of the army brats, hurtled down the stairs. He shoved me into the steel railing. Nice shirt, fag. The temperature on the morning of July 4th was a sweltering 110 degrees as my driver, Mohammed, 23, whisked me across the desert to Jebel Ali. Mo explained that there was much homophobia in the Arab world. He said that he himself had been chastised due to sporting a ponytail. Men yelled at him, why you want to look like woman? But he didn't care. Fuck them, it's just a ponytail. Besides, young people in the Emirates are growing up to be much more open-minded. That's what he told me. We arrived at a field of sand in the shadow of the USS Constellation where the grounded troops were enjoying an all-American barbecue, hamburgers, and to General Glee, a ration of two beers each under a hastily erected canopy. I made my way up to the makeshift stage, partially hidden by the smoke of the grilling hot dogs. I picked up the karaoke microphone. Standing in front of the star flight over Southwest Asia banner, I felt highly inadequate. <laughs> I introduced myself. Hi, uh, my name is Bill Brocktrop, and I want to wish you a happy 4th of July from everyone at NYPD Blue. And desperately invoking the tough guy star of the show, added, um, Dennis Franz wishes he could be here. Uh, <laughs> Sipowitz sends his best. <laughs> Following the ensuing silence, I was given a tour of the ship by knowledgeable Lieutenant Thompson. He described the carrier as a small city with its own police and fire departments, hospital and newspaper, but it reminded me of a big high school. It was easy to spot the types, the scrawny freshmen trying to carry off the peach fuzz mustache, the brainy honor society officers, 
and the varsity Top Gun pilots sporting provocative nicknames like Stoner, Flaccid, and Willie. <laughs> I looked over my shoulder, half expecting to see my high school tormentor, Eddie Ulrich. You never know where people wind up. And then I wondered if I was shaking hands a little too heartily and slapping backs a little too forcefully, trying to pass. I tried to relax and just listen. Guys told me about their families and their hometowns, their jobs. I learned that it's very bad to fall off the flight deck of an aircraft carrier because no one can hear you scream. I found out that there really is a brig and that having sex with someone on board, male or female, is one of the things that can get you sent there. But that if you take care of things yourself after pulling shut the little curtain on your bunk, no one will probably say anything. I asked, they told. <laughs> I finally got up the nerve to question Lieutenant Thompson about gays in the military. He said he was sure there were gays and lesbians on the ship. There haven't been any problems on board. Some of the older men have trouble with it, but the young ones growing up with it, they don't care. It's no big deal. That's what he told me in 2001. <laughs> the barbecue went down, and I'm happy to report that I was on the winning side of the afternoon's main event, the tug of war. <laughs> As the cheering subsided and the sun started sinking into the gulf, one of the pilots, winner of the one-handed push-up contest, gave me his squadron medallion. It's a coin rubbed smooth around the edges from being fingered in his pocket. Military tradition says that if a guy makes a challenge and wraps this coin on the bar, everyone must immediately produce his own coin or buy the next round of drinks. Keen-eyed viewers of NYPD Blue reruns can spot this coin proudly serving as a paperweight on my desk. He said, you could go anywhere this summer. Why would you come here? But beneath that white Arabian moon, I couldn't think of a more perfect place to celebrate Independence Day. In Bahrain, I finally met up with my USO liaison. I asked her, weren't you hesitant about sending a gay guy out here? Isn't that against some rule? She seemed surprised by my question and replied that the general in charge of the program thought it was a great idea. That's what she told me. She was much more concerned about my future career prospects as an openly gay actor in Hollywood. <laughs> Savvy lady. <laughs> <laughs> On our last day, the commander made a speech saying, it's not always popular to be patriotic, but I felt so proud to be an American, to be served by these people. Since 2001, I've spent holidays with the troops in Germany, Spain, Sicily and Sardinia, the Azores, Japan, Bosnia, Kosovo, Tucson, anywhere they'll send me. I've met multi-star generals and 18-year-old kids just out of small town Texas, or Tennessee, or Tacoma. And one at a time, they've changed my mind. Our next storyteller is Sam Schaber. This is her first time here at Word Now. Her story called, I Was a Six-Year-Old Grown-Up, recalls Sam Shaber's lifelong quest for independence, from New York to Scotland and back again, only to discover it's not quite what she imagined. Sam Shaber. When I was six years old, I became a grown-up for the first time. No, not like that. Um, but it happened all of a sudden. It was like a stepping through a door frame into a new world. Something had spilled on the floor of Miss DiCarlo's first grade class, and the cleaning lady had to be found. And I thought to myself, a chance to run through the halls unsupervised and taste a drop of independence? Sign me up. So I volunteered. Didn't take long to search the whole building. The cleaning lady was nowhere to be found, but I knew exactly what I would say when I got back. And I rehearsed the phrase in my six-year-old head over and over again as I climbed the stairs. I stepped up to Mr. Carlo and casually delivered my line. Ah, uh, it's no sign of her. It was perfect, just as I had heard my parents say it a thousand times. No sign of her except Mr. Carlo just burst out laughing and aped it right back to me. No sign of her, she said. And I was really upset, like what the hell was so funny? You know, did I say it wrong? I mean, I had rehearsed it. And she said, no, I, it's just, where did you get that from? How did you hear that phrase? And I realized that I felt insulted. I had this moment where I thought, 
I am six and I'm a grown-up. I understand everything grown-ups say and I don't need anyone talking to me like I'm a child. And I thought, when I get older, I will never talk down to anyone who's six because I will know that they can understand. <laughs> the next time I became a grown-up, I was 15. It was 19, and it was still not like that, but um, it was, <laughs> this is not that story, sorry. Um, it was 1988, and I was determined to spend my summer working at the Edinburgh Fringe Theater Festival in Scotland. So I found an American-based company, got a gig as a production assistant, and off I went to Scotland. Uh, my roommates in the flat were Kate, age 27, a red-headed voiceover actor from Chicago, and Sarah, 31, a blonde divorcee from Orlando. <laughs> and I was 15. So every morning I was up and out of the flat by 8.30 with a map and a to-do list and some petty cash, and I would be off to the thrift stores and junk shops all over the city getting all the props that we needed. And at midnight, when all the late night shows closed down, I'd be off in the pubs with the rest of the company drinking pints of lager and cheap wine into the wee hours, and then wake up the next day and start it all over again. So for two months, I lived the life of a complete adult. I fed myself, I organized my own time, and I spared not one moment of homesickness for my life as this child back in New York City. One of the shows the company was doing featured two actors. It was a Japanese soldier and an American GI. So I weaseled my way on to this show. It was not one of my real ones. The Japanese soldier was played by George Takei, not yet out of the closet in 1988, and yet that was not the reason why I wanted to work on this show. It was the American GI who was played by a 27-year-old sinewy actor named Andy with these dark brooding eyes and these slicing cheekbones, and every night I would watch him from the wings as I lovingly placed his props in the correct locations and arranged his costumes in the dressing room. And sometimes on the way to the theater, Andy and I would share some fish and chips at the clamshell on the Royal Mile. And then one time, I got him up to my roof and we watched the sunset over the Edinburgh Meadows while we drank tall cans of Tennant's Lager. I worked on Andy all summer. I was convinced that I was making progress. I mean, yes, he was 12 years, 12 years older than I was, but my father was 12 years older than my mother, so that just sort of seemed inconsequential to me. Well, apparently it was not inconsequential to Andy. Uh, one night in the dressing room, I noticed a composition journal next to his backpack, and of course I could not resist taking a peek inside. It's funny, this kid Sam works on the show with us and we hang out a lot. I'd never thought of her as a girl though. I mean, she's just been a kid to me. But yesterday someone mentioned that she's pretty and suddenly I could see it. But it was just for a second. <laughs> well, it was over. <laughs> Just in the moment that Andy described me as a kid, I became again exactly that. He had put me back in my prepubescent, my pubescent place. And of course I only knew this because like an immature child, I had snuck a peek at his diary. So returning to high school that fall and standing in line to register for 11th grade French, I looked around at my peers and exhaled in misery. <laughs> They're all such children, I thought to myself. <laughs> I felt like a prisoner of time, snapped back from adulthood and forced to carry textbooks and a bus pass. It felt like it would be years before I was finally independent. And now, I am a grown-up. I'm 43, I'm married, I own property, I've produced albums for my band, I've toured thousands of miles, I can drink, I can vote, I can drive, I can even rent a car, which you have to be 25 to do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I am now finally independent. Or am I? Because now I carry with me massive debt, 
I spend my time navigating health insurance premiums and mortgage rates and freelance contracts. And I also have anxiety about the darkest reaches of human cruelty and the extreme delicacy of life. My father is dead. My grandparents are dead. My aunt and uncle, my great aunts and uncles, my first cousin, many of my friends are dead from car accidents and cancer. My good friend Hallie died recently due to complications from her breast cancer treatment. She was 41. Hallie and I met when we were 10 at camp. It was the same summer I saw a boombox for the first time and got comfortable using curse words. <laughs> Hallie and I had this tennis class that we hated, so every time we would sneak down the hill to the abandoned courts under a tree, and she would read chapters to me from the only book she had brought that summer, The Godfather. <laughs> we felt so grown up. <laughs> but the last time I saw Hallie, she was sagging forward repeatedly on her Harlem couch, unable to get to the end of a sentence because her speech and her mind were so blurred and slurred, almost to a halt. And eventually midstream, she drifted off to sleep, and I went home, and a week later, she passed away. So this is independence. You know, I think a lot about a movie. It's called The Blue Lagoon. <laughs> Not a great piece of art cinema by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think about it all the time. To refresh your memory, in The Blue Lagoon, Brooke Shields and Christopher Atkins grow up alone together on a desert island, totally away from all societal influence. When puberty hits, they start feeling a little funny, but they work their way through it. The reason I think about this movie all the time is because I wonder if I lived in the Blue Lagoon, would I feel like a grown-up? Would I even know there was such a thing? Some kind of line in the sand between one version of a person and another? Would I feel like I had to dress a certain way or own property just to be appropriate or, or valid? I think actually when I'm older, when I'm much older, like 80 plus years old. Maybe then I will finally become a grown-up for the final time, and I will be truly independent. Because hopefully I will live without fear, without longing, maybe without debt. <laughs> uh, and I will be able to look at the world with some experience and some sage understanding and feel fulfilled and at peace. And maybe when this happens, I will move back to Scotland and I will buy a little cottage by the sea in St. Andrews. And every day, I will walk my creaky bones down the cobbled North Street to the Castle Tavern. And I'll sit there all day and drink Guinness with the regulars and knit. And maybe I will get to know the tavern owner so well that one day when she steps out to run an errand and the postman pops his head in, he'll ask me if I know where she went. And I'll look at him <laughs> with my old lady eyes, and I will answer in my creaky old lady voice, no, dear, no sign of her. <laughs> Sam Shaver. In a, a more in-depth bios of our storytellers, you can always go to the website, wordnowstories.com. That's wordnowstories.com. Um, and you could check out, again, the podcast and also check out more information about our storytellers. And this information about how to submit is also on the website. And without further ado, our next storyteller you might be familiar with if you have come to a Word Now story before. It is Betty Goldstein. And she is well known on the storytelling circuit in Los Angeles and New York. And she is a moth winner. Her essays appear in the Huffington Post and in the book, What Was I Thinking? 58 Bad Boyfriend Stories. <laughs> Betty Goldstein. When I was in junior high, a girl's popularity was proportional to her cup size. <laughs> Fanny Casagrande, the coolest girl in school, wore a triple D underneath her tight red sweaters 
And she always had a fresh hickey on her neck. <laughs> the boys fought over who would carry Fanny's books home from school. My boobies were teensy weensies, and my books felt like a ton of rocks on my long, lonely walk home. I was the only girl in Pacoima Junior High who still wore an undershirt. I begged my mother to buy me a brassiere, but her answer was always, no, you don't need one yet. <laughs> when I turned 15, mom finally caved in and gave me one of her bras, but it was too big, so I stuffed the cups with rolled up socks. The socks kept falling out, so the boys would scramble to pick them up and toss them around like baseballs. And to make matters worse, the head of the gang was Bobby Brzezinski. Bobby was the cutest boy in my class, and I had a major crush on him. He would lead the other boys in a chant, Betty stuffs her bra, Betty stuffs her bra. <laughs> I would run crying to the girls' bathroom and restuff the cups with scratchy toilet paper, <laughs> which fell out too. Every night I prayed that my itty-bitties would grow, but God would not grant my request. <laughs> when I went off to college, a miracle happened. I finally blossomed. I no longer needed to stuff my bras. I began dating and discovered the wonders of my body. After college, I landed a great job and got my own place. I had a busy social calendar. Life was good. But I gave it all up when I married at 24 and moved to Venice with my Italian husband. I know it sounds romantic, but guess again. <laughs> For starters, even though I was well-proportioned, Tiziano kept complaining my B-cups were not large enough. He was way crueler than those boys from junior high. He tried to bully me into having silicone injections. When I refused, he started chasing after any woman he saw who had big knockers. Even worse, Tiziano was a paranoid control freak. He opened my mail. He eavesdropped on my telephone calls. He locked my passport in his safe and hid the key. He gave me the equivalent of only $5 at a time. That meant I never had enough money to take to the train to the American consulate in Florence. Anyway, I wasn't allowed to leave the house without a female relative accompanying me. I was trapped. I had to escape, but I couldn't see how. But then something wonderful happened. I got deathly sick. <laughs> this could be my ticket out. I begged Tiziano to let me see an American doctor in America. He refused. He insisted that Italian socialized medicine is the best in the world, and even better, it is free. He brought me to Dr. Mario Pupa. <laughs> Under Pupa's care, I got worse. I became unsteady on my feet. I was in constant pain. I turned into a 99-pound skeleton. But it wasn't until my tetes shrunk to small buttons that Tiziano finally showed some concern. Reluctantly, he handed me my passport and a round-trip air ticket. I will hold your diamond ring and necklace in my safe. You will get them back when you return. I knew I would never see my jewelry again. But it was a small price to pay for freedom. When I returned to California, I received great medical treatment and made a full recovery. My deflated breasts filled out. I reconnected with family and friends and found a job. I started dating, but my biggest satisfaction was hanging up on my Italian husband each time he called. 
One day, Tiziano showed up at my parents' door to reclaim his chattel wife. Instead, I told him that I was filing for a divorce. Tiziano's final words to me were, no man will ever love you for the rest of your life. Time passed. I put on a lot of weight all over. My cup size grew from B to G. Then I met Paul, a sweet, caring man who swept me off my feet. The night before the wedding, I asked Paul if he was marrying me for my ginormous tatas. <laughs> Hell no, woman. I love you. If you had a mastectomy, I would kiss the scar. So now I am the proud owner of humongous bazoomas that those mean junior high boys and the even meaner ex-husband will never, ever get to fondle. <laughs> and more important, those guys will never be on the receiving end of my back rubs, the gourmet meals, the laughing at his dumb jokes, and the total devotion that I give to Paul. In my book, that's called Tit for Tat. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Carrie Dearborn. Carrie is a naturalist and writer who blogs at animalbites.net and theearthminute.com. She's been telling stories since the age of three when she learned to fish from Alaska to Hawaii. Fish tremble at the sound of her name. <laughs> Carrie Dearborn. For me, independence is a place. A place where icy streams tumble over granite boulders. A place where the snow-capped Sierra Nevada mountains meet the desert of the Owens Valley. Independence Creek is where I learned to fish. Standing in rushing stream water, I'm surrounded by the freedom that lured my family to North America in 1639. The Dearborns arrived just 19 years after the Mayflower. We soon realized, however, that the Puritans, while well, their definition of religious freedom applied only to themselves. So we moved next door and founded New Hampshire. Live free or die. <laughs> Nathaniel Dearborn fought the British at Bunker Hill. His grandsons wore blue at Gettysburg all except for my third great-grandfather, who hightailed it to California on the eve of the Civil War. Live free, eh, don't die so much. <laughs> Luther Dearborn came looking for gold, and he found it. To honor his grandfather, he named his claim the Bunker Hill Mine. But to develop the mine required money. So he and his partners sold their mine to speculators from San Francisco, who renamed it the Standard Mine, which went on to be one of the largest gold strikes in California. Bodie boomed to 10,000 people, and you can still visit the ghost town just north of Mammoth. Luther, however, lost absolutely everything trying to strike it rich again. It's not in my DNA to be independently wealthy. Instead of digging for gold, his sons went searching for natural treasure, golden trout. Really, there is such a thing, and it's only found in the eastern Sierras. So they settled near the golden trout, fishing the streams of Lone Pine, Big Pine, and Independence. When I stand at this bend in the stream right here, I know that my great-grandfather Owen fished right here, that my grandfather Carl dropped his line over in that pool over there, and that my dad caught his first brown trout 
over by those willows. As soon as I could walk, I had a fishing pole in my hand. I learned to hunt grasshoppers for bait and to turn over rocks in the stream looking for fish candy, slimy little brown nymphs of stoneflies called helgramites. I love that word, helgramites. Our family motto is, you catch it, you clean it. When you're a kid, that's kind of cool. My first anatomy lesson and ecology class was looking at the insides of a trout. At 10, my first pocket knife declared my autonomy. I no longer had to ask my dad for his knife to clean my fish. To fish is to sustain yourself, physically and mentally. Sometimes the solitude, watching a wild rose bob on the melodic movements of the stream, that's my best landing of the day. To fish is enter the world of wild things, to think like a trout, to truly live free or die. But let's be clear, fishing is not catching. It's a process, a mindset, a philosophy, putting your skills against those of another creature. It's not what you do to survive. I was standing in Independence Creek, coaxing my line into a hidden pool, when my five-year-old nephew, Clayton, burst through the sagebrush at the stream's edge. Aunt Carrie, help! A huge trout has taken all of our salmon eggs. Now, for those of you who don't know, salmon eggs are not caviar, they're bait. My sister was in the stream, flipping over rocks, looking for helgramites. It's huge, he said, and it's in that dinky pool over there. I could put my arms around this pool. It was just beyond the main current. A small waterfall was rippling the surface. But if you watched closely, a dark figure moved back and forth with the current. Now, a nice stream trout measures 10, 12 inches. This was a monster. We have to catch it, Aunt Carrie. <laughs> My sister and I had caught fish before, but then she was five and I was eight. Dad was upstream fishing. My mom was back in camp. We had our poles and our creel and our salmon eggs all on a log over a big pool. And we were just happy putting our lines in the water. When a truck drove up from Fish and Game, and a man with a uniform jumped out of the truck, took a net full of hatchery-raised trout, and dumped them in the pool at our feet. Have fun, he said, and he drove off. Twelve trout in the pool right below us. In about 10 minutes, I hooked one of them. And then we thought, this is great, but then nothing. It was like the word got out. <laughs> the water was so clear, I watched a trout suck a salmon egg into its mouth and spit it out. Suck it in, spit it out. Suck it in, spit it out. Suck it in, I tried to hook it, but I couldn't get it. I so wanted my dad to know that I was a good fisher person. Then, of course, my little sister's line got stuck underneath the log. <laughs> Hooks cost money. We were taught, go in, get it out. So I waded into the water, the freezing waters around my thighs. I'm feeling under the log for the hook, and two things occurred to me. One, the water was not as deep as I thought it was. Two, my hand was very close to that fish. It felt like if I just reached and I touched it. And then it occurred to me, we could catch these fish. <laughs> we had a plan. My sister moved slowly through the water, herding the trout toward me. As they got close, I reached for one, I missed it, but I kind of pushed it through the water and it seemed to hesitate. So I scooped with my hands 
and water and trout went up onto the bank. And it flipped and it flopped, and then it went back into the water, and we dashed over towards it, splashing, and it froze stiff in the water. Light bulb moment. When trout get disoriented, they freeze. We corralled the remaining trout in a small pool. And then we approached them from opposite sides, each of us shoving the water back and forth. And the fish just froze. We picked them up floating out of the water. <laughs> 10 minutes, six fish. When my dad returned, he coyly said, did you guys catch anything today? Because I caught three. And we said, yeah, we caught seven. And six of them we caught with our hands. Did you know if you just swish the water? My father went pale. Stop. Don't say anything else. I don't want to know. We fish with a pole. You don't poke the fish. You don't trap the fish. You don't grab them with your hands. Do you understand? No, I didn't understand. Didn't we want to catch these fish? What you did is illegal. And you're only supposed to have three per person here. Well, that I understood. That was bad. Then he added, don't ever tell anyone how you caught those fish. And I haven't until now. <laughs> His disappointment burned. But I learned. Fishing is a sport. It isn't catching. Native Americans didn't fish. They speared, they netted, trapped, they caught fish for survival. Now here we were, 25 years later, my sister and I, a very small pool, and a big fish. You know, Aunt Carrie, you can almost touch it. No, Clayton, we do not touch the fish. We outsmart it. What? does it want? So the three of us scared up a grasshopper. We put it on that hook. Clayton and I stood on a rock, balanced in the middle of the stream. And I eased that grasshopper into the pool. And its legs kicked. And it rippled on the surface of the water as it floated down past that big trout. And I handed the pole into my nephew's little boy hands. Hold on tight kept my fingers on the line, and wham! That trout hit that live bait just like it was supposed to. Keep that pole tip up, Clayton, I said. Hold on to it. I jumped over onto another rock, trying to get to the far edge. Bring it over towards me. He angled the line over to me as he reeled in. I reached for the line. It held it up out of the water. It was beautiful, this huge trout. And then it flipped its head and threw that hook right out of its mouth. It splashed down into the stream. And I jumped into the water, looked at my sister on the shore, scooped, <laughs> tossed it towards her, and hit the bank, flip-flopped around. Clayton's yelling, catch it, mommy! And she did. <laughs> 20 inches, two and a half pounds. The biggest trout any of us have ever caught in a stream. I can catch, but I choose to fish. It's my heritage and my stubborn need to live free or die. In a crazy world, <laughs> it gives me confidence that I can think outside of myself and survive. So when the zombie apocalypse comes, <laughs> you're on your own. I'll be on a river, a stream called Independence. Carrie Dearborn. And our final performer tonight is Lynn Ferguson. Writer-performer Lynn Ferguson is very pleased to be here tonight. On a Sunday evening, she's generally at home cooking chicken. Lynn Ferguson. Hi there. 
I have always loved the word independence. In Scotland, it's one of our favourite words. It's sort of right up there with uh, drink, uh, <laughs> haggis, rain and culture. And uh, growing up in Scotland, my parents talked about independence all the time, and they were avid members of the Scottish Nationalist Party. Now, don't panic, right? Because <laughs> I know things with Nationalist Party in it tend to have a sort of implication of, you know, a little military-esque uniform and some straight-legged walking, <laughs> some bombing. But Scottish Nationalism really wasn't like that. It was bizarre. There seemed to be a lot of kind of steak pie made. <laughs> and uh, the reciting of the poetry of Robert Burns, that happened. <laughs> and there was a lot of dancing and singing and the occasional sort of flourish of tartan. And also the other thing that was funny about Scottish nationalism is it kind of worked even if you weren't from Scotland, right? Like if you came from somewhere else and you moved to Scotland, right? And you said, hey, you know what? even though I'm from somewhere else, Scotland shouldn't be governed by the English. Everybody was like, come in! You're awesome! So, like, Scottish nationalism actually was really interesting because it didn't matter what colour you were or what religion you were. All you had to agree on was that you shouldn't be governed by England. <laughs> Which is fair. <laughs> I don't want to put a political point across, but I'm just saying. But there was, but there was a lot of joy in it. And now um, this Brexit vote has ruined everything. It's like tainted everything. It was set out, if you don't know what it is, it was like the campaign for Britain to leave the European Union. And it was set up by these idiots from London who uh, decided that the country should leave. And the country voted for it. Uh, in fact, Scotland didn't vote for it, despite the fact that we love independence in Scotland. Scotland was like, hey, we don't want to be governed by England, but we're still citizens of the world, right? <laughs> so once those guys got Brexit, then they left and said, oh, it's all been a mistake, sorry, get on with it. And it's horrific. You know, the economy has tanked. Uh, people who were friends with each other now hate each other. There's an air of suspicion. It's ugly, you know, it doesn't feel like independence to me. It feels like nationalism and not the kind of nationalism where people make steak pies. You know, I left school, well, I left school obviously when I was 18, but I also left home just after I left school and I moved to the big city of Glasgow. And my parents said it was because I was very independent, but it actually really wasn't. I just kind of felt like it was time for me to look after myself. I bought my first apartment when I was 19. Go me. And uh, I know, right? And, um, and everybody was like, man, that's so independent. And I was like, you know, no, I just kind of want to learn to look after myself. I want to be accountable for stuff and know how to pay bills. When I was 26, I moved to London. Now, everybody thought I was crazy for doing that. They were like, that's the big city, right? You must be either really crazy or really independent. And I was like, I think I might be crazy. <laughs> but actually, the truth of it was that I had noticed that all of my friends were kind of going off and doing their thing. They were like moving to the suburbs and settling down. And that really wasn't my flow. So I chose to do something else and I moved to London. And London was mental, you know. <laughs> For a start, it was the 90s, so everybody was all about the money. Do you know what I mean? Give me the money, it's the money, give me the money. And, and also, it's very busy, it's like packed. And, and full of people from all over who've come to this place for different reasons. And, and for a while it felt kind of really overwhelming because the loudest people were the craziest. And so you kind of had to kind of stand your ground and trust that you knew enough that it was going to be okay. And it was. After a while I found people who were like me and it was kind of awesome. Then one night, in a very busy street, a very busy bar, I was drinking. <laughs> you know this isn't going to end well, right? 
And I met a man who was from Scotland. And we liked each other. And I have to say, he was the worst one night stand I ever had. Because we have been together for 16 years. 16 years, you get shorter time for murder, right? So within two years of meeting this guy, we were married and we had a child. And then a couple of years after that, we had another son. And, uh, and I learned that being one was pretty good. But being one of four was kind of awesome. So then, in 2008, I got offered a job here in Los Angeles. And that was, like, terrifying because, well, one, because we... <laughs> We didn't have a house or anything. We would have to rent a house that we'd only ever see on the internet. And we had six weeks to move from there to here. Um, and then, uh, you know, I couldn't work out whether it was the right thing to do. But when we agreed to do it, people said we were very independent. <laughs> and I was like, you know, we're not independent. What the deal is, is my husband hates his job. My son is having a tricky time at school, and the little one who can't even speak yet, this isn't going to be the kind of place that suits him. So we moved, and we travelled across and landed here with eight suitcases, two children under six, into a house that was completely empty but was supposed to be part furnished. <laughs> And we stayed. We've been here ever since. I am now a citizen of the valley. And uh, I know, right? It's worse than anything else. And, um, and we've talked about staying. And my children now are grown up. And they talk about us becoming citizens of America. And I wanted to. But this Brexit thing has ruined it, completely ruined it, because I spent hours on the internet looking, and these people in Britain are crazy. And when you look on the internet for a while, you realize that it's not just the people in Britain who are crazy. What's happened to the world? Where did all this hate come from? It's like I genuinely am not convinced I want to be a citizen of anywhere. Anyway, then I got a text, well, actually an email from my teenager. He lives in the same house as me. <laughs> he does, but he's 13, so now he would much rather communicate through email or text. We'd had a talk about independence, and uh, because I'm so messed up about it, and he sent me an email. It said, hey mom, to me personally, independence is knowing your own limits and not having them set by someone else. Independence isn't something someone else should give you, but what you gain from knowing yourself. So here's what I know about me. I know I am a Scottish woman with two children living in the San Fernando Valley, <laughs> outrageously in love and married to the worst one night stand a person could ever have. I understood that early on I committed to be an adult. And as an adult, that means that I have to be accountable for myself and know how to pay my bills. I understand that when I see things that don't run my way, I can take a choice and I can leave that thing and go and follow my own flow without judgment. I understand that sometimes the world is really crazy and it's very busy and the people who have real danger in their minds are the loudest. But if you kind of stand your ground and you like wait knowing what is right, then finally you'll find the people who are like you. I understand that I like very much being part of a world with other people, and I don't want to be on my own. And I understand that the right thing to do is always for the greater good. 
And sometimes you have to use your voice for other people who don't have a voice at all. All of these things I understand and have learned. They are independent. Now, because I'm human, sometimes I forget about them. But fortunately, I am frequently reminded in email or text. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to ask all our storytellers to come up for a final bow. And thank you, everyone, for coming to September 18th, fall. We'll see you then. This is Michael Lachey from Eclipse One Media at eclipse-one.com. Eclipse One, new media for a bold world. Word Now, personal stories told around a theme. Visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. Like what you hear? Send us an email to info at wordnowstories.com. Want to be a storyteller? Send us an email to storyteller at wordnowstories.com. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.